It's good to be here this morning. I've enjoyed being in the Sunday school lesson, and to tell you the truth, I feel uh, very encouraged. It's it's just good to be with children of God and and to be to be hearing the word, studying it together. This morning, the subject that I'm felt led to preach on is the most exciting and peculiarly um, fundamental story of the of of Christianity. It is peculiar to Christianity. Can anyone tell me what the subject is? Outside of Christianity you won't find this attribute in any other religion. The resurrection. Um, the resurrection. Jesus said to Mary, the brother of Lazarus, in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And that was Jesus saying that about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. I'd like to read as a uh, as a main scripture passage out of First Corinthians fifteen, the whole chapter, and then make some comments on it. So, if you want to open your Bibles to First Corinthians fifteen, and for those who would like, uh, let's stand for the reading of the word. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, or which also ye are saved, if ye keep my mem- in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but are, some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I have persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some of you, some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified that God hath raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith faith is vain, ye ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable." But the truth is, now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are 
Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are, the, why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. I, af, if after, I, if after the manner of men have fought with the beast at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But some men will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? The fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die, and that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain, it may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed its own body. Moving on down to 42. So is also the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised in spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not the first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And as the earth, as is the earthy, such are, also, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthy, we also shall bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, in the last trump, for the trump shall, trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You may be seated. You may be seated. That's a long passage of scripture, especially if you're reading it. But I felt like it needed to be read to get the the whole Paul's whole uh, testimony or or, or or logic there. And I'd like to step back a little bit. In verse 4, you'll read that he was seen of a number of people. And Paul mentions those. Um, 
Actually, verse, verse 4 and 5. He was seen of Cephas and of the twelve, and, that, and after that he was seen of above 500 brethren. I'd like to, I'd like to look back into Matthew and add some human element to this. Actually, the, the message title is The Resurrection Power. So I was looking at the resurrection, my thought kept going back to, well, where is what's powering the resurrection? What brings the resurrection to life? Because, you know, when you, let's just make a really crude example. When you look at a vehicle, you want to know, it can be a nice vehicle, but unless you know what powers it, uh, you may not have a whole lot of trust in it, at least if you're the one operating the vehicle. You kind of like to know what's, what's bringing that vehicle to life. And for Christianity, I think that's so important that we know what brings it to life. Otherwise, it's just a vehicle. It's just another form. And in this case, the power is everything. The power is all. So let's look at Matthew 27, 54 to add a human element to this, to this story of the resurrection. The person in focus this morning will be Mary Magdalene. Matthew 27, verse 54. Here's Mary at the crucifixion. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. So this is prior to the resurrection. This is at the crucifixion, the time that they were taken Maybe after burial, I'm not sure. I didn't look at that. The exact part of it was right before, right after burial. But they said, truly this was the Son of God. It was before, I believe. And many women followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, were there looking from, on from afar. So I picture these many women uh, that followed Jesus, ministering to Him and His disciples. Um, you know, standing out on the side of the hill there, looking on hearts grieving. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and mother of Zebedee's sons, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So Mary the mother of James and Joseph and and of Zebedee's sons, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So these, uh, this Mary Magdalene was a, was a, uh, I would consider a a very good friend of the family here with, with, uh, Jesus' mother and, and, and those that were most closely related to Jesus. Also then going on to her uh, account at the, at the resurrection, John 20, verse 1. Now the first of the week, Mary Magdalene went out to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. We know the story, them coming, them leaving, and then Mary standing there uh, at the tomb weeping. And then verse 12, uh, verse 11, Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and she wept. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She just couldn't let this go. She couldn't believe this had taken place. I believe and she was grieving here. 
And in verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. So this is Mary at the resurrection or following the resurrection. The first person recorded as having seen Jesus. And then in Luke, a bit more about Mary and then we lose... We lose uh, sight of her uh, after after this account. Okay, now wait. We lose sight of her at this account. Now, a bit more about Mary earlier on. After the resurrection, we don't read more about Mary Magdalene. But earlier on, a little bit more about Mary Magdalene. In Luke 8, 1, it, it uh, gives account of her early experience with the Lord. Now it came to pass afterward that Jesus, he, it says he, that Jesus went out through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him. And a certain woman who had been healed of the evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, his wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, many others who provided for him from their substance. So <clears throat> we read two things here about Mary Magdalene. One was that she was healed of seven demons, which must have been very, I mean, living a life bound by seven demons must have been a, a, an awful existence. And she came to know the Lord. The Lord healed her of that. And after that, she was like we'd mentioned before, she was with the with others who provided for the needs of, of Jesus and his disciples. I suppose they helped out with uh, with finding lodging and, and food and maybe communication, so forth. So she was one of the maybe what's called a disciple to the disciples. So briefly again. She was delivered of the seven demons. She was one of the devoted ladies. Um, tradition would suggest that she was the one that anointed Jesus' feet, uh, and thus enraged the Pharisees, and, and also bad, badly irritated Judas shortly before the crucifixion. This was, of course, an extreme act of devotion on her part. And Jesus also speaks of it as being his anointing for his burial. She was one of the women with Mary's, Mary, the mother of Jesus, watching from afar. And she was the first to see the resurrected Lord. You know, Mary must have been quite surprised to see her teacher after all that had taken place just a few days preceding this. You know, she had no, no clue what an important and what a key figure 
she is in the most important narrative the world has ever known or will know. I'm sure she had no clue what important um, part she had in, in, the most, in the most important narrative the world has ever known or will know. The narrative peculiar to Christianity, which is the resurrection. Now moving back to 1 Corinthians 15 again. I like to I like to feel human element when I when I'm looking at any subject. Um, maybe it's just me, but I think we all like to be able to relate to somebody to how they saw it through their eyes, and to be able to to um, process it process it an event that way. So going going back now to to Paul's account. Very a very logical argument here. First Corinthians fifteen fifteen. Yea, and we were found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise, so the argument was here that the the dead don't rise, and Paul was saying this is a fundamental part of Christianity that, you know, and, and given the reasons why it's such a fundamental part of Christianity. So were the, there were detractors there at the church at Corinth, just like there are detractors today, detractors of the gospel, people who sought to rob the power of the gospel to neutralize it and diminish it and bring it down to something less than it is and just bring it down to something that's manageable. Uh, but the gospel isn't manageable. It can't be corralled in and, and brought into to, uh, the real true gospel led by the Holy Spirit. It can't be corralled in and, and managed because it's by, by men. Because it's, it's living. It's the power of God. And it manages. It turns the world upside down. For that reason, evil people hate it. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19. I'd like to read those verses again. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty, and in your faith is also. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You, you are still in your sins. If in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, the most miserable. Imagine the disappointment of a false belief. Imagine believing there's a resurrection, but finding out there's none. No hope. Ultimately, no future. It sounds bleak. Meaningless. Delusional. These words, these are adjectives that come to my mind if I think of no resurrection. And I'd like for us to think about that just a little bit. You know, Think of what think of what life would mean to you if there were no resurrection, if there were no hope of of seeing Christ, if there were no future beyond the grave, if it were like Charles Dawkins, is it said that that our life is wrapped up in our brains that which will uh rot and perish, you know, when we die? Just imagine that, because brains 
that gray matter doesn't last any longer than the rest of the body. You know, it's true that Jesus' way, and some people promote this idea, that even if there's no resurrection, Jesus' way is still the best way. Mankind still works the best Jesus' way, okay? So, you know, if we are nice to each other, we love each other and so forth, it's still better. I agree, that's true. But unless Jesus' kingdom has come and, and there's a resurrection, there's no power to live that way. There's absolutely no way that, that Jesus' way can be fulfilled without the resurrection power. And that goes for children of God as well. There can be no resurrection in the church. There can be no resurrection in, in the country. I mean, no, no, no power to live Christ's way without the resurrection in the church or country. But then going on to verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul's throwing out that. Think about that. But then he moves back here and he says, but that's not the case. Christ is risen from the dead. He's, he's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made what? Alive. Let's say it all together. All shall be made alive in Christ. That's not speaking of death or, or decay, but that's speaking of newness. Christ is risen from the dead, Paul asserts. Christ overcame death. First by healing and also by raising the dead. Most publicly, Lazarus was raised from the dead. You know, when, Mary, when Jesus talked to Mary there, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, yet though he were dead, yet shall he live. You know, he demonstrated that power even before he himself was raised from the dead. But then Christ went beyond that and, and he demonstrated that death didn't hold dominion over himself. And he very, very publicly rose from the dead after a cruel crucifixion. The grave was empty. And he showed himself to this 500 people, and to Cephas and also to Mary Magdalene, who wasn't mentioned there, and many, many others. Speaking of the first fruit, In verse uh, 23, thank you. Verse, yes, verse 23. Become the first fruit of those who slept. You know, when you think of first fruit, what do you think of? What is a first fruit? It's the first of the crop. It's that first fruit that you pick. And... Uh, when you think of a, a first fruit, you're, you're, you're likely to, it's right to think that the rest of the fruit is going to be somewhat similar or, or it's going to be very similar to that first fruit. So if you have a wheat out there, you pick the first ripe wheat, the rest of the wheats will be similar to that wheat. Same with an apple. If you get it off an apple tree, you get, 
pick the first ripe, ripe apple. The rest of the apples will probably be the same, uh, unless there's been some grafting or something else take place. Well, Jesus was the first fruit from the dead, which gives us the hope that we'll be the same. We're, he's the first fruit among the brethren. And that to me is special to think that we'll be like Jesus, raised from the dead. The first fruit of the crop, he's the first. And then we, who are dead to sin, I believe is what it means, not dead to, to uh, not having died, just simply physically died, but having died intentionally to sin, to the demons, as Mary did, we'll have, we have that chance to be, we have that opportunity. God's extended that privilege for us to be made alive like Christ. John 12.23 says this, uh, Jesus is speaking here, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. So there we have the opportunity to be, and there's the, also the rule for how to become a fruit of Christ becoming the second fruit, the second picking, or however many pickings you want, but it's the same fruit, the fruit of Christ. Moving to 1 Corinthians 15.45 then. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first was created. The last is the creator and giver of life. So we have one Adam that brought, introduced sin into the world. He became a living being, but he also, Paul describes him as being of the flesh. And we're all sons of Adam, very much so. This last Adam speaks of Jesus and him being the first fruit, us being the, the fruit of God through Jesus Christ. The giver of life. First Corinthians fifteen fifty six. Thinking of the resurrection again, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Sin causes fear, condemnation, and unpreparedness for the future. Think again of Mary Magdalene living with his demons. Um, those adjectives come to my mind, and I think they come to all of ours. You know, fear condemnation, unpreparedness for the future, a living of, in bondage. Sin shouts, I've robbed you of what was to be rightfully yours, and I've left you with only punishment as a reward. That's what sin does. It's a sting. The sting of death is sin. And then we have the law. We combine sin with the law. And the law is like a what comes to my mind is an impenetrable corral. It's an impenetrable corral to the, to the sinner with, with only one gate, and that gate only opens to hell. 
It only opens to the to the to uh, fill in a passage to the pits of hell. You know, uh, uh, the law here it says unless you can fulfill this law of God, um, you're going you're condemned to die. You're condemned to punishment, eternal condemnation, eternal alienation from God. And that's the strength of sin, is the law. No person can fulfill the requirements of the law. And again, the punishment for not fulfilling the requirements of the law is eternal damnation, eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. And that doesn't give a very nice picture. <clears throat> but living, the resurrect, living in the resurrected life, we have a different picture. Verse 57, it says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thinking again of that corral of the law. You know, it's broken by the resurrection of Christ. It's broken, it's torn asunder. Christ has, has broken the strength of the law in the grip of death by his atonement for our sin and by his power over death. He's broken that strength of the law. He's given us free access to God through the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit to receive the strength to live a sanctified life, a life that's being sanctified, a life that's being made holy. But most importantly, he's given us that avenue, that direct avenue to God. Our, our, our sins are, are taken away. Just like Mary Magdalene was healed of the seven demons. Our sins are removed. Those, those, uh, we're, we're brought into the presence of the Lord where we can live. Not just within the perimeters of the law or fulfill the perimeters of the law, but live well beyond it. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So that's what breaks the, the strength of the law is the, the grace that is freely given us through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.15 But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man the gift by the grace of one man, this one man being the second Adam that Paul talks about, Jesus Christ abounded to many, giving life to many. And that I find beautiful. That's peculiar to Christianity. That grace that abounds to many. The resurrection of the dead will be raised into a spiritual body, a body made for spiritual needs and for living a spiritual and incorruptible life. 
So also, uh, reading verse 42, Saul says the resurrection of the dead, the body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first but natural, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth and made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So this question came up, you know, if, if people are going to be raised from the dead, what kind of bodies are they going to have? And I, I suppose it was asked in a sarcastic way because Paul addresses it back as if, as if it were asked in a sarcastic way. And Paul says, you know, really, uh, that's not important. And what's important is, is God's going to raise that body to meet what? Physical needs again? No. He's going to raise that body to meet spiritual needs because you're going to be spiritual and, and whatever body, Paul doesn't address the form of the body, but he says it's going to be made so it will address spiritual needs. And that's what he's saying here. We'll be raised incorruptible. As we have borne the image of man of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you, mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We won't all sleep. Some of us, not everyone will die. Many will. Many will continue to die unless the Lord returns, but there will be some that will be changed. He says, in the twinkling of an eye. That's faster than a twinkle of an eye. I mean, that's slower than the twinkle of an eye. Um, they'll be changed. And then there, the, and it's, he talks about the sequence, how the dead will rise. For the trump will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immor immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, the mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Paul responds back to that question again. And he gives a triumphant answer to the sting of death and the strength of the law. He says, Death where is your sting? Oh, hates, where is your victory? Going back again to Mary Magdalene in that very human account, a woman so much in need, a woman who was helped so much, a woman who loved Jesus so much for the way he had saved her life, her soul. For her, the resurrection was very, very real. She had witnessed the healer of her spirit and, and the savior of her sinful life. She'd witnessed this, this man, this Jesus, work miracles, healing sick, raising the dead even. She had heard his life-changing teaching. She had probably seen it take effect in other people's lives and watched that with wonder. She publicly in a very public way, showed her gratitude and devotion to Jesus. 
by anointing his feet with very costly ointment. She followed along with the other, dis- other disciples to his awful trial, probably asking questions about it. Why? How, how could they be, you know, punishing him like this? How could they be, you know, why could the Jewish hierarchy be, you know, uh, bring him to trial for, for doing so much good? I'm sure these questions were running through her mind. Trying to understand the whole picture and, and, and grieving for the way he was, for the way he was uh, treated and mocked and scoffed. I'm sure she cried with the others following his death and grieved. But when Mary witnessed, Mary Magdalene witnessed the risen Savior at the tomb, she was witnessing something very, very special. She was what she witnessed death having been swallowed up in victory. And therein is the power of the resurrection. If you want to look at the vehicle of Christianity and you want to see where the power is, right there it is. It's Jesus Christ having swallowed up death in victory. I was looking for a a song. There's so many hymns about the resurrection that I was was looking for one that that would catch the message and or would speak to the message. And I came across this one written by Charles Wesley out of Hymns of the Church that I thought might best express Mary Magdalene's how she would have, how she would have, uh, what she may have said. It's, uh, and, and I'd like to focus on one phrase in this. It's called, Gladly Catch the Healing Stream. 416 in hymns of the church. O love divine, what hast thou done? Is the title. O love divine, what hast thou done? The incarnate God hath died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son born, bore all my sins upon the tree. The Son of God for me hath died. My Lord, my love is crucified. In crucified is crucified for me and you to bring us rebels back to God. Believe, believe the record true. Ye all are bought with Jesus' blood. Pardon for all flows, pardon for all flows from his side. My Lord, my love is crucified. Behold him, all ye that, all ye that pass by. The bleeding prince of life and peace. Come sinners, see your Savior die and say, was ever grief like his. Come feel with me his blood applied. My Lord, my love is crucified. Then let us at beneath his cross. Then let us sit beneath his cross and gladly catch the healing stream. All things for him account but loss and give up all our hearts to him. Of nothing think or speak beside. My Lord, my love is crucified. In my mind, <clears throat> my eyes were drawn, my mind was drawn to this thought here and gladly catch the healing stream. You know, when they're talk, when the author there is talking of the healing stream, it's not talking about a nice flow of water coming out of the side of a mountain where you catch and drink. 
He's talking about the blood coming out of Jesus' side, coming out of his wounds. And I don't know about you all, but there's something about blood that I don't really um, like. I mean, I like it to be in me. I like it to stay contained. But I don't enjoy a uh, dealing with a wound. And there's something about blood that just... Uh, it doesn't do to me like it does to my dad. It makes him faint. But it, you know, there's just kind of a repulsion there. But I think that that's such an important part for us to grasp as Christians. That that is where the power of the resurrection comes from is right there. And we have to embrace it. We have to be willing to catch that healing stream and realize that that's where the power of the resurrection, the power of Christianity comes from. It's only from that. Without that, we wouldn't have hope. The resurrection Mary witnessed, the resurrected life we are called to live, and the final resurrection from the, of the dead are inextricably linked by one common supernatural element, the healing stream. The healing stream, the seed of the resurrection. So this is the seed of the resurrection for all mankind. And without that seed, for you and for me, there is no opportunity for new life. Unless we catch, flow a hold of that healing stream, which is the seed of, of the resurrection, unless we catch hold of that, there is no opportunity outside of that for, for new life. There's no opportunity for new life in our hearts today. There's no opportunity for the corral of the law to be broken. There's no opportunity to be part of that final resurrection of the dead. There's the power. Romans 8.10 And Christ is in you. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised up Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That same power that raised up Jesus from the dead raises us up from the dead spiritually. And it will ultimately change our entire being from earthy to heavenly. And thinking about the future just a little bit, the resurrection isn't complete unless we look at the ultimate resurrection. I'd like to speak on that sometime in the near future if the Lord wills. More specifically on that. But looking at that, the, you know, the, the decay, the curse, finally will be given the death blow and will be given our spiritual heavenly bodies. And the same power that lifted mankind above the law and broke the strength of sin will completely quarantine sin and its effects forever from those who, like Mary Magdalene and many others, have chosen to embrace the resurrected life, embrace the healing stream, embrace the cleansing that comes from the healing stream. And I couldn't close this message without reading these last two verses. 
57 and 58. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not vain in the Lord. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because we're looking for the resurrection, the most fundamental and important part of the Christian's life. Without that, our hope is in vain. But with that, our life has every potential that you can think of. And it's beautiful. God bless you.